0: Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today.
1: Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J.
0: Hey, guys. Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher.
1: We are all over the place today, Santosh. We're uh, talking about butterfly yeah. toast and <laughs> Drano.
0: Yeah. The, uh, if you want to, are, are we giving people a peek behind the curtain? Is that No, what's we're on?
1: just going to let them... Make their own decisions what those topics mean.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: All that to say, sometimes we get a little discombobulated as well.
0: This is one of your favorites.
1: So, folks, it's an alternate week. And I think by this point, six years in, or (laughs) welcome new folks, you should all know what that means. Every other week, it's time for a... Journal Club!
0: Yay! Ooh. Still working on that sound effects budget, Josh. Still working.
1: To be fair, this was also one of the laziest intros we've given. <laughs> so I feel like the low budget sound effects were appropriate here.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: But yeah. this week's roundup of medical news is focused on. A theme I like to call, huh, who to thunk it? This is a very low-budget journal club.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, you, I guess you didn't even do your do-do-do-do-do-do's, which you usually
1: do. No, yeah. no, that's, that's, that's only for our 80 Plagues episodes. Moving on to the first article. Some of you may remember the hot new disease back in... had nothing to do with China. It was instead South America, and down in Rio de Janeiro, we had the Zika virus. Remember the Zika virus? Happier times.
0: It was. it. The scary thing, if nobody remembers, is first... A lot of investigators, Brazil, by the way, has an amazing public health infrastructure. They they have amazing reporting for birth rates and uh, developmental disorders and kids and a really good way of providing ongoing and preventative health to everybody. So they, they track these parameters really well. They saw a massive uptick in children born with microcephaly or small heads. Itty and
1: bitty heads.
0: Itty bitty so heads. So cute. The the incidence was much higher than would be normally predicted because usually there's a, you know, a small percentage of children who are born with microcephaly for some reason or another. So Dr. Karen Nielsen, um, who's here at UCLA, along with her colleagues down in Brazil, started investigating and they found largely the presence of this virus called Zika, and they saw saw that a lot of the mothers who gave birth to these children with microcephaly were infected with Zika. It wasn't a perfect one-to-one correlation because it was difficult to detect this thing, Um, and nobody had very good tools to figure it out because this was actually an old kind of nothing virus from back in the 1970s in Africa. Nobody had really talked about it, but it looked like it had made its way west. And during that time, it had also gained some mutations that caused neurological disease and eye disease, especially in the growing fetus. And they are highly, highly suspicious at this point that the Zika virus was the cause of this uptick In problems with neurology and neurodevelopment in developing fetuses around Rio de Janeiro in South America.
1: Or at least so went the news chiron scrolling across the screen. Don't travel anywhere in South America or you could have a baby with an itty-bitty head or something to that effect.
0: (laughs) And we had travel restrictions all the way up to the Caribbean, actually.
1: So... As we are in travel medicine, I figured let's follow up and see were those fears justified because an important part of science is checking your work. Mm -hmm. So around a group of about 200 babies born to mothers who had contracted Zika virus, Dr. Karen Nielsen Saints at UCLA and her colleagues tracked these babies and they were all born by December 2016 and assessed using standard tests to follow infant and toddler development in terms of language, motor skills, cognition, vision, and hearing. About half of the babies who had abnormal assessments early in their lives ended up testing normally in development around ages 2 or 3, whereas maybe 30% of the children had lower-than-average development, which includes things even like just eye, vision, or hearing deficits. For most of them, language development was the most affected, with a much smaller proportion showing motor skill and cognitive development. Um, And when we're talking small amounts, eye exams were abnormal in about 7% of these 200 babies, hearing deficits of some form in about 12%. Only eight of the children had microcephaly, the abnormally small head shape. And over time, it actually resolved in two of these kids. This is scientifically not unexpected, but it does conjure up a delightful mental image of their heads just inflating. No,
0: no. (laughs) Just like
1: like when you put your your thumb in your mouth and you blow and your head inflates like a cartoon character. (laughs) That's what I'm picturing.
0: That's not what happened. The head just kind of caught up with the rest of the body.
1: (laughs) No, and then the other, the kid had corrective surgery, but I still choose to think of it as of the eight children with microcephaly, two of them were just like, and it got bigger.
0: (laughs) 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 Yeah. Yeah. this was still worrisome. So just like you said, Josh, the sentinel event that kind of set everybody looking for what was the problem was microcephaly. So after they found you know Zika associated with some of the cases of microcephaly, they actually just started looking for moms who got acutely infected with Zika during their pregnancy and then who passed it on to their babies and tracking those children and their neurodevelopmental outcomes. So you're absolutely right that microcephaly, a small head, wasn't the principal symptom amongst these 216 kids. Um, the main marker that they were really worried about was that uh, you know, they had, you know, this below average neurodevelopmental outcome, and they used this assessment called the Bailey three assessment to check motor skills, language, cognition. Basically, it was a little like mini baby IQ and tasks test, um, which is the cutest thing ever. Cause it's kind of like, is this a teddy bear? Yes, it's a teddy bear. <laughs>
1: Now, the first important thing here is, again, for all the scares about Zika, the media made it seem like every woman who contracted Zika could only have babies with itty-bitty heads. And this study showed that, no, in fact, a very small proportion of those children got microcephaly. Most of them, there were concerns more about neurological delays. And even in a lot of those, most of the kids, or at least many of the children in this particular study... Ended up catching up to age-appropriate goals in time,
0: right? And you know, we're we're tracking to age two and to age three by this point. The main reason that you create this cutoff uh, for this particular study is that we start to get a lot of confounding things, uh, factors after this point that can affect a child's development past this toddler type of age. So now you're going to start getting things like, well, how much does diet, exercise, sunlight, um, you know, uh, stimulation, uh, that uh, schooling, nutrition, all this kind of a thing. What does that factor in to changing a kid's neurodevelopmental outcome? But because those types of factors are largely homogenous during this age, you can track this language function, cognitive function, and motor function, especially, Josh, motor and hearing, just like very objective types of measures, really, really cleanly. And I was super excited. I saw that, you know, the 82% of these kids had a, you know, a normal or average cognitive score. 64% had a normal language score. 81% had a normal motor score. Um, it, it was very, very encouraging to see that just because they had Zika, and especially just because they had delays early on, it doesn't mean that these kids could not be normal. Um, these kids wonderfully have a, a great chance of being normal, healthy, intelligent kids.
1: Now, if you're interested in hearing more about the Zika virus back when it was a more current thing in the news, you can scroll on through our backlog and find the episode called, I believe it's zika dee da, because... <laughs> I love my puns.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he really, really does. And props again to uh, Dr. Karen Nielsen at UCLA, um, all the way through to Dr. Maria Elizabeth Moreira down at uh, in, in Brazil. The collaboration, this was like intercontinental collaboration that not only helped bring attention to this in Brazil, but helped bring attention all the way up through South America when there were potential outbreaks in Colombia and Ecuador and the Caribbean. And so I think with their efforts, there was a lot of good recognition. um, So that not only could people potentially avoid contracting Zika, but the kids who needed help and who needed things like physical therapy and occupational therapy and cognitive therapy during this time got the help that they needed
1: now of course there's always some limits to any study and in this particular one one of the limits is that they lost several uh, of the families to follow up because at a certain point parents of kids who are healthy don't really want to (laughs) keep undergoing evaluations to check for problems it's just (laughs) it's a psychology thing they're like well you said my kid was okay and they're getting better and why are you still following them what (laughs) <laughs> what are you not telling
0: me? Well, to be so to be very fair, uh they started with 244 kids, right Josh? So mm-hmm. 11 of those moms um were lost to follow up even before the kids were born. So we don't know what happened. And then six moms out of the remaining 223 uh were lost to follow up afterwards. So actually, we got a pretty good proportion of the original 244 uh, positive pregnancies. Um, we had 216 kids to look at, so it was a it was a decent sized cohort.
1: And there also, sadly, was no control group. Which it's right. not like they were testing any particular treatment, but they didn't have any way to track against as as you said earlier, what's normal for development based on cultural and societal surroundings and environment. Sure. At that time, so either way, some good news about something that we were very worried about turned out to be not as big a cause for concern. And most of the kids who had it looks like they'll turn out quite all right. Hmm. I'm very very who'd have thunk it.
0: <laughs> is this gonna be the thing after every it's single gonna article? Be,
1: this is gonna be the thing.
0: Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Look, I
1: told you it's a low-budget one. No, no, it's fine.
0: I just want to see where your Cronkite is at.
1: (laughs) (laughs) My journalistic integrity.
0: Yeah. (laughs) All right, go ahead.
1: Moving on to our next story, I know one of the things that you get super excited about is CRISPR and its applications in humans and for gene therapy.
0: Yeah, I well, I already use CRISPR and CRISPR is already being used in the lab all of the time. The question right now is what's the application for uh, application to human disease? And that's the big exciting thing that's in the news right now.
1: And as humans, we were pretty dang proud of ourselves for co-opting CRISPR into our society for all its medical applications. And then, we learned that we are not the only creatures that have the ability to CRISPR.
0: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, to be fair, we stole this from, you know, from Streptococcus and other bacteria that use CRISPR-Cas9. So uh, I I don't know that we use it. We stole it.
1: Well, (laughs) we're not the only ones who thought to steal it. Because there is a kind of virus called a giant virus. Yeah. And giant viruses are, I mean, it's not like you're going to walk down the street and see one. <laughs> They're still fairly small.
0: They are, but, they are. But I, I actually love this particular virus because it's called a mimi virus.
1: The mimi virus! It is, you, yeah. It, you have to say it with that high-pitched voice. <laughs> it's yeah. So this giant virus known as the Mimi virus yeah. is so enormous, it actually gets attacked by other viruses who, I mm-hmm. don't know, feel insecure, maybe. No. And <laughs> as a result, the Mimi virus has evolved its own kind of CRISPR-like immune system to defend against these smaller viruses. And a team in France has now confirmed how it works by transferring the entire system this CRISPR system from the virus into a bacteria and trying to get it to work like our crispr
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So for those of you who are not quite sure or who haven't done a read-up on what CRISPR Cas9 are, CRISPR is not actually the tool. Um, CRISPR is a series of palindromic repeats, meaning that in the genetic code, when you're reading DNA or RNA, it'll have a repeated sequence that if you read it forwards or backwards, okay. it'll read this. You have these repeats that are actually found in viruses. So bacteria uses a enzyme called Cas9, CRISPR associated uh, scissors actually, okay. to detect those repeats and say, oh, that's a virus and then snip it in half. So it, it slices, actually, it slices RNA for the most part and cuts it open so that the viruses can no longer work on the bacteria and hurt it. Then, interestingly, Josh, the coolest part of the system in bacteria is it takes that sequence and then stores it in its own genome, like a little library, so that it can, if it sees that virus again, it can actually read its own DNA, and say, oh, I've seen that thing before. That's a bad virus. Let me go send Cas9 and kill it. Um, so it's what awesome. you're
1: saying is these viruses and bacteria basically are scrapbookers. The, they collect things that they've seen before, uh-huh. and when it comes up, they go, that looks familiar. Uh huh. Let me go digging through my journals.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it'll, it'll you know, you'll have a reading... Enzyme which actually reads the DNA sequence until it gets to the right CRISPR and says, Oh, dude, that's the same thing that's invading you right now, these random pieces of RNA that are floating around. That's not supposed to be here. Scrap it. And then scrap. So it.
1: the discovery was that this giant virus, the Mimi virus, was immune to a. Oh, you didn't say it fate. right, Josh. You're right. The discovery is that this this particular virus, the Mimi virus, <laughs> is immune to a virophage called Zamilon. Oh, I and love the it. Scient- <laughs> And the scientific community said, "No, you know this isn't really a CRISPR kind of system." So this French team, led by scientist Raoul, transferred the Mimi vi- yeah, I don't even think I can say that. Mimi VRA system <laughs> to an E. coli and tried to replicate it. And they swapped the Zamilon virophage for instead a bacterial gene. And when they activated this system, that gene got chewed up and added to the scrapbook. So it successfully changed the target. And this shows that viruses or even this system is not specific to just viral and it's a way that viruses could evolve resistance. So we know a little bit more about how viruses can protect themselves from bacteria and protect themselves from our immune systems as a result of this.
0: So I, I absolutely love this because the Mimi virus, when you start getting to giant viruses, we start kind of blurring the line between what's a, a, a virus type of organism, which is something that cannot replicate by itself. It needs to hijack another organism's cellular machinery in order to replicate. Then there, there is this notion and these thoughts that at some point, you know, viruses kind of figured out surrounding themselves with a membrane you know, gain some other organelles and protein machinery, and then independently began to replicate by themselves. And now you've got bat- bacteria. So it makes a lot of sense that there are viral phages, you know, a little bit more ancient lineage uh, than bacteria, and that these Mimi viruses and other giant viruses had to defend themselves this is so cool because it's almost like taking a look back in time of how these nucleases kind of started out in viral particles and what they've evolved to in the present day. I'm I'm very, very excited about this. Oh, for everybody kind of freaking out about the giant viruses, don't worry. Mimi viruses just go after amoebas. That's it. They're not gonna hurt you. Amoebas! G- <laughs> What are you doing right now? <laughs> I don't know. I
1: just I like the way it sounds.
0: <laughs> All, right.
1: All right. Um so it might be possible to adapt this system to edit genomes, but at the moment there's no plans to study that. And you know, the fact that something we were so proud about stealing from bacteria is something that a non-living organism has already managed to evolve on its own. is a little, uh, it's a little disheartening no, for no, human no. ingenuity. Well, it, but...
0: <laughs> I I don't think this is a novel thing that the mimi virus came up with. Um, I I don't think it's fair to think about it 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 may be in fact that. The the Mimi vir or Mimi virae I, I actually don't know how they like to pronounce it, um, which is M I M I V I R E Mimi virus virophage resistance element. So which is its CRISPR? It's it's very very possible that this virus was already evolving over you know millions of years, and that this Mimi system is you know, old or older than CRISPR-Cas9 that we know now. Huh. Yeah.
1: Who would have thunk it?
0: (laughs) I'm going to put my head through my computer screen.
1: (laughs) I was going to see if I can get you with this at every story. Just You give me that perfect opening.
0: I was so Um. excited and happy about the story too. (laughs) Fine.
1: So, Moving on to our next story. Gallstones. Mm. Lots of people get them. And for the most part... Some people
0: love them, some people... No, no, (laughs) nobody likes them.
1: For the most part, we know a lot about how they form. Uh, Many are kind of clumps of crystals in the gallbladder, often caused by collections of cholesterol. But... Even though we understand how they form, it's not entirely clear how they stick together. Like, what's the glue holding these little clumps to a point where it forms a gallstone that can get lodged in your bile duct and cause pain? Mm. Yes. And now, thanks to uh, scientist Martin Herman at the Friedrich Alexander University Erlangen-Nuremberg in Germany. For scientists who want to do, for scientists who can't read good and want to do science good too.
0: (laughs) I, you don't get much more German than that series of like Martin Hermann at Friedrich Alexander University, Erlangen, Nuremberg. I mean, where's that person from? That's Germany. Nice.
1: And they began studying small gallstones in the bile of people who are already undergoing operations To to treat this. And what they found is it seems immune cells, human immune cells, may be the glue that binds gallstones together. And on the surface of all of these stones, there were signs of tiny little sticky webs of DNA released by our immune cells to catch invading microbes. And now I get to think of my body filled with tiny little immune spiders. (laughs) So that's a pleasant thought. It is.
0: So this is something that's been known for a while. It's really cool. We usually, you know the cartoons that we always see, Josh, of the neutrophils? They gobble, right? Like you see them kind of forming a little Pac-Man-like mouth. Mm -hmm. And they surround the bacteria and then they... They, it, waka, gl- waka, yeah waka, waka. it globs it up and then the bacteria breaks down inside well dude your neutrophils are also little little tiny spidermen um they can throw out these things called neutrophil extracellular traps or nets haha um <laughs> I'm not
1: I'm sorry let's all take a moment of silence to appreciate a good science yeah,
0: oh oh my god they actually want you know and by the way, other non-biology scientists have figured this out a long time ago, but we're, we're so bad about it. Yeah, they would, oh, it looks like a net. Let's call it a net. What does this stand for? Neutrophil extracellular trap. Josh, neutrophils regurgitate their guts, including their nucleus, okay, with the DNA contained inside, because DNA is very, very sticky, and they shoot it out like frickin' Spider-Man, and it casts out like a net and surrounds whatever they're trying to grab and then suck it back into themselves to destroy or just go ahead and entrap the the particle or the bacteria right there and wait for its buddies to come in and, and do the rest of the work. Do Can you imagine yourselves like shooting out little webs like this? It's happening all the time.
1: My body's filled with Spider-Man. This I can get
0: behind. <laughs> I mean, I I go Spider-Man instead of just like spiders. But yeah, you. They, um, if if you could 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 you do me a favor and just like while we're here, just like Google neutrophil nets and go to images and take a look at some of these. You can actually see the trap like springing, like poing, and then ah, oh, it's so much
1: fun. Ooh. <laughs> You see that? Ah. <laughs> uh, Fwip! <laughs> yeah, there it is. So, you got the to test this, yeah. the team mixed a couple of cholesterol crystals with human neutrophils in a lab setting, and the neutrophils responded by flinging their DNA out at the crystals. And then, when the team shook and spun around gallstones in the presence of neutrophils, the gallstones collected a whole bunch of these nets. On top and that pulled even more cholesterol crystals and calcium together to form larger stones. So why do we care?
0: Yeah well we always for a long time we thought these phenomenon and by the way this is kind of under the umbrella of cholesterol plaques in your heart that cause heart attacks. We always thought that these were kind of static phenomenon. You know, the the cholesterol or the gunk just kind of gloms together and sticks, and then it causes an obstruction, whether it's in your gallbladder or in your heart. But we now know that there's a pretty strong inflammatory component. That there is something that signals that this is foreign and it's dangerous, and so our inflammatory cytokines get ramped up, neutrophils get called in, and the problem in in these cases is that your immune system is trying to fight something, but it's going to end up doing more harm than good.
1: These findings may end up leading to better preventative treatments for gallstones that don't ultimately result in in surgery and. Herman and his colleagues found that altering genes... Wait, wait. Are
0: you talking about Dr. Herman the German? (laughs)
1: Herman the German. I'm sorry. (laughs) Dr. Herman the German and his colleagues found that altering genes or using certain drugs that could impair the formation of these <laughs> nets would lead to fewer and smaller gallstones in mice. I have to
0: stop giggling. He's a really well-respected guy. This thing came out in Immunity, which is a fantastic journal. <laughs> <coughs> Herman the <to> German. <laughs> Sorry.
1: And one of the drugs <sighs> that the team tested that actually helped to prevent... The formation of these gallstone nets is metoprolol, which is a drug that many people with high blood pressure or atrial fibrillation are going to be intimately familiar with. So trials are in place to see if metoprolol and some of these other drugs may have an effect on preventing gallstones.
0: Yeah, I'm ultimately... In a lot of these cases, the only solution we have is laparoscopic cholecystectomy, which is a fancy word of saying you put in a camera with a bunch of grabbers and you cut the gallbladder out and you take it out. And it's a good solution. Put
1: a camera in, the gallbladder <laughs> out, you put the camera in, and... <laughs> And you swish it all
0: about. <laughs> no, no swishing. You don't want to swish. You just...
1: You take out all the gallstones and you turn yourself around. Oh.
0: <laughs> so it, it's an okay solution. The And the surgery has become very, very mainstream and easy. But if you can do prevention, if you have someone who you know is predisposed to getting gallstones and you can actually give... A medication to prevent them from happening in the first place instead of worrying about the gallstones happening and then causing a blockage and then inflammation, which is cholecystitis, then I think this is a, a really cool solution. Now, by the way, this doesn't mean that this is going to work for all types of gallstones. This is specifically with cholesterol gallstones, which is, well, to be fair, one of the most common time common types that we have um but yeah i i think it's super super exciting because we are thinking about this disease process in a different way other than just mechanical glomming together of bile and cholesterol and mechanical obstruction
1: huh who would have it
0: our next <laughs> and final story <laughs> <laughs> I just you know what it you know what sucks? That I'm surprised every time. That's that's the best part. No! Like I'm sitting here like an idiot, like I should learn <laughs> like But you never do. Uh, Alright.
1: So the next one also deals with immunotherapy. So moving from the gallbladder and neutrophil nets to something called CAR-T cell therapy, kind of like car B, but for cells. And it's nothing like CAR-DB. It's, it's, <laughs> oh, it's a new form of immunotherapy that has been used mostly to treat cancer. And what it involves is taking a patient's T cells, which is a natural killer or immune cell, modifying it and sticking on a receptor that did not exist before, so a synthetic receptor that you put onto the T-cell that can then allow that immune cell to recognize the cancer cell you're trying to treat. So you take the T-cell, you give this adaptive cell transfer or the chimeric antigen receptor, that's your CAR, And then you have your Mm CAR-T, B.
0: (laughs) Yeah, a, a T lymphocyte, which is one of the cells that participates in the cellular arm of immunity.
1: Now, this is still a pretty new treatment for immune cell and cancer therapy. And the fact that it's worked pretty well has encouraged scientists to begin to explore it as a treatment option for other diseases because the principle is just pull out a cell that we want to target something stick on a receptor so it can target the thing and then put it back into the body and let it find the thing yep so what's the biggest killer of people in the united states and in many places around the world, Santo. Well, yeah.
0: If you're in an industrialized population, an aging population, you're going to have heart disease is you know pretty high up there for number
1: one. And one of the leading causes of heart disease and what contributes to a lot of the blocking of arteries and things like that is something called cardiac fibrosis. So under normal conditions, fibroblasts provide a little bit of just structure for the heart. Um, but when these cells are overactivated, usually after a heart attack or a traumatic injury, they can start depositing excess, fib- excess extracellular matrix or building blocks into the heart muscle, and this causes the muscle to thicken. It causes a loss of flexibility, so you get a stiffer heart. You're more likely to develop heart failure or problems with your heart valves, where you can't pump blood as efficiently. And really, the only thing that we've ever been able to do to help these is if the heart gets too stiff or too clogged up, sometimes we can put in a stent to kind of force a channel open. Mm -hmm. And other times we go in and just replace a valve entirely, pull something out and put in a pig valve or a mechanical valve. So the idea that we could now take these cells and design them to target fibroblasts that have become hyperactive is what this study is all about.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think this one was fairly early, right? This was focusing on the the mouse?
1: Yeah, so this was performed by Dr. Jonathan Epstein at Penn Medicine, and also there were a couple of cardiac studies in mice performed by Kaur, K-A-U-R, et al. in 2016, and Kanisiak. Uh, And they found that if these cardiac fibroblasts were ablated or gotten rid of, you could actually reduce cardiac fibrosis and improve heart function. Now, they also amended you can't use these strategies in humans. You can't just go in and destroy fibroblasts (laughs) in humans the way you can in mice. So instead, they began working on building cell immunotherapy to try and target specific malfunctioning Fibroblasts based on what they had learned from the mouse models. So, this study that Dr. Santosh is about to talk about was performed by scientist Aghajanian and colleagues.
0: I, I actually really love this because it uses a lot of old school methodology and fuses it with this new immunotherapy. So, one of the ways where we can teach an immune cell to target an antigen is actually to use a standardized antigen that we've been using for a long time because we understand the response so we actually have been using ova it's um uh, it's basically an egg artificial antigen uh and it's a big ovalbumin you know piece of protein that's easy for the immune system to recognize and to kind of train a new immunotherapy against so the mice actually had a genetic alteration where their cardiac fibroblasts also expressed ova on the surface. So the cells functioned perfectly well, but it had this extra antigen. So first, they they started with the ova model because that's an established one. And then they said, OK, so we're going to take the CAR T cells and we're going to have a T cell receptor against the ova peptide. Um, because that's already established, and so we'll give the CAR T cells to the mice, and oh, boom, less cardiac fibrosis. So now they said, okay, we can't have you know artificially expressed uh, antigens on the surface. So you know, let's go ahead and use FAP, <laughs> fibroblast.
1: What's FAP stand for?
0: Fibroblast activation protein. <laughs>
1: So you're telling me scientists had to fap heavily to get this okay. to work. Okay.
0: <laughs> so the FAP CAR T cells were engineered. Um the 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 T cells were essentially taught to target FAP. God damn. You
1: So he taught the T cells to fap. No,
0: to target FAP. Right. Yeah. Got it. FAP. <laughs> And they said <laughs> they t- they trained the cells, so they gave the T cells a receptor against FAP, and then transferred those T cells into the mice. And the group found that about a month post transfer, um, they saw much fewer cardiac fibroblasts compared to their control. Um, and they also saw that the mice. W- looked healthier so they had better diastolic function and systolic function um and so right now we're at this phase we're saying okay well is this the right antigen to target do we have a um, a good analog in humans that we can use as an equivalent um but i i thought this was absolutely amazing um
1: Well, humans also fab, Santosh. Uh, Sure. Uh, The fibroblast activation protein was found on human fibroblasts in diseased hearts, suggesting this therapy may be translatable, but there's still a lot of work to ensure both safety and efficiency in people. So they've learned a lot about how to engineer the immune system, Mm -hmm. but... If this works, the next steps, they would have to advance it to inhuman clinical trials after doing some larger scale animal trials. Yeah,
0: and the the one worry is that you do need cardiac fibroblasts around. You don't want to send in a bunch of immune cells which are going to wipe out the cardiac fibroblast because then you'll get the opposite of that stiff, non-compliant heart. You'll actually get a floppy, ineffective heart which is prone to arrhythmias and will just like break down and die. So I, you know, it is a really scary uh, kind of balance that you have to establish. But Dr. Uh, Agajanian, uh, who's in, uh, you know, who's also working with Dr. Epstein, who was the final paper on this nature paper back in September of 2019. Um, I, I think they're onto a fantastic track. What makes it even more exciting for me is we have taken CAR T cells from use in cancer where you are targeting a certain cell line in order to just get rid of them completely, um, in that case leukemia. And now you're actually using it to moderate uh, overgrowth and inflammation, um, this kind of a process that leads to tissue destruction, but it's not quite cancer. So. Josh, you can also think about this with a, as a possibility for something like hepatitis, where you start to get fibrosis and cirrhosis in the liver. You can also target fibroblasts potentially in the liver with CAR T cell therapy like this, if it works out. I'm super excited to see where this comes up next.
1: Now, these will only be designed for diseased organs. So this isn't something you can do to prevent heart right. attacks. But it's something you can do to prevent remodeling of the heart following a heart attack if it works as planned. And you could do this to prevent further advancement of a cirrhotic liver. So it would be good for tissues that experience disease or pathology due to scarring and injury. It's not going to be a preventative
0: treatment. Yeah. Prevention is still, you know, stop smoking, exercise more, eat properly, don't drink so much. Wash your hands. <laughs> Wash your hands. Yeah.
1: So, a February haiku. Love is in the air, but so is influenza. Wash your filthy yeah. hands.
0: <laughs> Having nothing to do with CAR T-cells. Although nothing although either. I am excited for its application in infection somewhere down the road.
1: So, using a cancer therapy to potentially treat after effects of heart disease.
0: Yay. Huh. Who have thunk, thunk it? Thunk it? <laughs> yep.
1: All right. Well, fourth one the charm been a good sport. <laughs> yep, you learned about it just in time for us to end the episode because that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. This show is produced by me and Dr. <laughs> Santosh with a lot of help yeah. from many, many yeah, people. Yeah, including
0: my therapist. <laughs>
1: if if this week's like to gonna be a doozy
0: us. doc <laughs> sorry i don't have them on the phone right now
1: i would, I would love would your therapist your there taps taps taps, taps bit of a little bit
0: of a i hope they don't listen. That's why I'd be a not listen of a i
1: bit of a little would be a terrible. a terrible bit of a you would like to learn if you'd like to support us spiritually emotionally or financially links to do that are in the show notes along with links to resources used to research this episode our theme music is composed by rachel ledger and until next time as always happy travels bye guys